Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern-day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years, and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from, and what drives them forward. I think we're moving into a space where employers are not afraid now to say, look, it's really bloody hard to work here. It's complex. We're a bit of a dysfunctional family. It's okay to feel a bit crap in this environment and we're prepared to help you. As well as the hundreds of thousands of deaths, the one hidden killer of COVID is its impact on our mental health. As it is such a deeply personal and complicated issue, Self-Space founder Jodie Karras is trying to make this difficult conversation more acceptable and accessible. Hi, well, Jodie. Uh, welcome to Stories of Growth. Very uh, excited to have you on the show. Um, something that I've been, you know, waiting for, I think, because we put this in a while ago, peak lockdown. Um, so, yeah, really good to finally catch up and hear how you've been, um, what you're up to, uh, and, you know, where things are going, shall we say. So why don't we start with a little introduction as to who you are and what you might be known for. Yeah, thanks for having me. We did put this in months ago, didn't we? It's um, definitely been a bit of a crazy old time. So thanks for having me. I really like the name of, uh, of the podcast. It's called... I think with, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a bit uncertain is the general sense of, I guess in my core, I feel a bit uncertain, which is kind of um, unusual feeling for me now in my 40s. I think I kind of evolved out of that and I notice it's a bit back to that sense. Um, And so I guess that's, a bit where I'm at professionally and personally, but there are some things I feel really sure about um, and then others that I don't. So um, I'm the founder of Self Space, which is a contemporary mental health service and we work with individuals, we work with companies and we're kind of about normalising talking about how you feel and making it less about waiting until crisis point to go talk to somebody, but really knowing that this shit is hard and you have to work at it all the time Good mental health is not a given. If you don't feel good, there's not something necessarily wrong with you. It's just that we need to really kind of work those muscles to know ourselves a bit more. Um, and I, I guess this has been a real time for people in reflection. You know, this this experience has triggered so much for people. Um, so I guess I'm a bit with everything at the moment. That wasn't really a concise answer to your question. <laughs> How are you feeling, Jodie? Well, <laughs> do you feel a bit uncertain, though? I'm not asking you questions, but do you have a sense of sort of uncertainty? Yeah, I think the whole you know, the whole world does, right? And that has permeated through, you know, every layer, every fabric of culture and relationship. And, you know, my mum, they were like, well, can I go out? Like, and yeah, how, what is this, how does this work? And... Yeah, I mean, understandably, and that, you know, questions create anxiety and anxiety starts questioning yourself and why, yeah, I mean, pertinent, I'm assuming, I'm hoping, and maybe not in a, in a, in a sort of a negative sense, but, you know, you guys have obviously been busy in terms of helping people understand all of these anxieties and these questions in terms of your business. And maybe starting with that in terms of your, I, I guess, the... It's not so much the offering because you mentioned that, but I guess sort of how you do what you do and feel that's maybe different from what what's out there. Mm. Yeah, so it really has been a time. I was looking at our kind of bookings and um, just kind of wondering at what's happening to people. And I think at the beginning of lockdown, there was a bit of paralysis. Well, there was adrenaline. So we went into this kind of fight, flight or kind of freeze scenario and we kind of we really galvanized I think with the things that meant something to us it was a bit like people went into crisis but there was something comforting about bless you pulling pulling people in close and sort of holding on to what we've got and then I think we moved out of that into anger 
frustration, also a sense of relief at not having to do some of the shit that we've had to do before, whether that was commuting or dealing with quite difficult people at work. So there was a kind of multitude of things going on. Um, we switched, so we primarily were face-to-face business. We've got locations in different parts of London, but also service kind of international companies. So actually the team were brilliant. There's 28 therapists on the team, all of kind of different um, uh, experiences um, and trainings. And we we moved over to Zoom pretty easily, actually, um, except me, and I'm a technophobe. So I was like, could somebody, I really just need some more help with this. But actually, very seamless, and that worked really well. Um, and engagement with clients, really nice, really good, really useful to have the space. I think I personally struggle as a practitioner, as a therapist, with not seeing the whole of people. I really like to be able to see the whole of a person and to kind of feel their energy in the room, really. And what am I, because we only give away so much in this space, right, in the screen space. While they can be just twitching their hands, moving their legs up and down, and I don't see any of that. So, and I think that's been a bit of a common theme actually with um, with the team. There's been, well, you have to work really hard as a therapist virtually because you're having to kind of really, um, really work hard to notice what you're not seeing. But I think it's been a really useful kind of space. Um, I feel I felt so blessed that we had a purpose at this moment and I felt our purpose was really useful and I'm not sort of blowing my own trumpet here but as a that I felt that moment of okay I think we can really help here so we did free sessions for the NHS all of my team offered their time up for free I didn't pay any of them and that felt really good to be able to go we can do something really tangible here um so that felt nice um and we were a consistent for people people that had used us before could come back virtually I think we had really good dialogue with our corporate partners you know there were there's a lot particularly people in HR and stuff you know the emotional impact of having to let so many people go what does furlough mean you know there was a real connection with with our partners and I think we felt useful for that period it was really hard work but yeah but that purpose uh, that you mentioned, is that where the whole story began for Salesforce? I think so, really. It was a combination of um, me just feeling really frustrated with the therapy world. Um, so I was a television presenter before I was a therapist, and my background is in media and kind of that area. And I trained as a therapist 16 years ago just purely from the fact that I didn't I didn't can I wasn't connected to any meaning in what I was doing it was really cool and everything but I I just didn't feel very much and so I went through a period of feeling quite unhappy and unpurposeful um and then trained as a therapist and had to be in therapy myself and could not believe how I could not relate to my therapist in any way as in I don't mean in the way that we communicated or talked but in the space that she was in, in the way that she looked, in the way that she talked, she was brilliant in many ways, but I felt that it was quite dated and old-fashioned. It felt like I was unwell, and I really kind of rallied against that. There was a stigmatising sense to it. And then, uh, so my first company that I founded is in education. We work in schools. We support marginalised kids. And then I kind of kept getting pulled back to the media industry. Like, can you come and talk about feelings? But don't say you're talking about feelings. Don't say mental health. Just come in and maybe talk about creativity and stuff. And I was like, no, that's not going to happen. We're going to talk about feelings right now. And we're going to talk about how hard it is to be a human. Um, and from the back of that, when I sort of started talking to agencies, I guess, there was a real moment of people going okay can you refer me to someone who's a bit like you or somebody who who it feels like this thing that you're talking about and I got to the point where I didn't have anyone to refer to anymore I'd run out of the people that I I kind of advocated and then I thought okay I'm going to pop self space up because I think there's something here which is about helping people to reach their potential and I I felt that that I I could do that somehow, I guess, with the right people. Um, and so that was it. Yeah, so I guess it was about purpose. 
And it was also about me really just thinking so many people struggle with how they feel and don't quite know where to go. They don't want to go to the doctor because that's where sick people go. And then what am I just going to get antidepressants, which are very useful in lots of cases, but not always. Um, And what could I do to bring a bit of that kind of um, creativity, I guess, to that space? Yeah, sure. So when when was that? What, what's the timelines on those from the you know, the founding of Self Space or the founding of the education business? So trained as a therapist sixteen years ago, started the education business quite soon after I had my kids. Um, maybe three years after training, and that was just really organic. People were like, I ran out of time; I couldn't do everything, and so I just started building an agency there. And then I, Self Space is three years old in February, so we're still quite new, really. Um, we opened our first branch in Boundary Street in Shoreditch, and within six months we were full, which was amazing to me. And people would come in off the road and go, this place looks really cute, what do you do? And then we did no marketing and PR, nothing. It was all word of mouth, which felt really good for me because I didn't want to be telling people we could do this if they didn't feel that, they were experiencing something positive, some growth. And so the word of mouth thing felt really important to me. Yeah, I think I found it when you opened on Shoreditch High Street, one of your little millennial pink postcards, understandably, you know, it's obviously right, well, understandably right time, right place uh, in terms of a, a service that is often misunderstood uh, and but, you know, still needed right now more than ever you know coming back to the uncertainty that is yeah i think we could all benefit from a bit of uh self-safe you can definitely come and have a session well beyond me <laughs> just in terms of where uh you know i see where where that's going in terms of a um you know discipline and you mentioned your first therapist being like outdated and no real connection and uh, you know where how are you seeing that evolving in terms of you know because there is obviously a you know, need where you know where do you see that more in terms of the business of therapy and how that can be uh you know made more accessible I think okay so I think there are two things I think you mentioned the word millennial there and you know, I, we were referred to once as a trendy, are we a trendy mental health provider? And that really sort of uh, made me grit my teeth because I I think we have some, some kind of really modern qualities, but ultimately the convention of therapy is old and those traditions really work. You know, the, the, um, the, the history and the boundaries and the the education around what we do is really vital to the practice. But I think that what we're doing is bringing the, levelling the playing field a bit. I think historically therapists have been on a pedestal and the client is the person who is left kind of wanting the answers from the therapist. That's that's how I um, have, have, have felt it conventionally. They're the academic person with all the answers. We don't believe that. We believe the client has the answers. Our job is just merely to shine a light, maybe where they're not looking, challenge a bit. I think closing the distance between the client and the therapist whilst maintaining the professional boundaries. So I might see somebody in a bar that has used self-space. Historically, that might not have happened. We're much closer. You can probably relate to our team of therapists. I've seen that jacket in x y and z or there's something a bit more human about it you expect to come to self-space and somebody say hey come in how are you doing you know rather than something that's a bit more clinical and sterile so I think there's that um I think we're moving into a space where employers are not afraid now to say look it's really bloody hard to work here it's complex we're a bit of a dysfunctional family it's okay to feel a bit crap in this environment and we're prepared to help you without I don't think employers should take sole responsibility for the mental health of their staff I don't I don't think this this system should be about that but I think if companies can support they will have more productivity they'll have happier 
more content people who are kind of raising the aspiration, I guess. So there's something about us helping employers to support people in a way that is really tangible and meaningful, um, as well as driving people towards their own sense of responsibility for their mental health. How you feel is up to you. Yes, your company can support. Yes, your family and friends can support. But ultimately, it is on you. And I, I, I still feel that in the space we're in, we're a paying service. People refer to mental health money as luxury money. So they might buy £300 pair of shoes, go on X holiday, but they can't afford therapy. And they do all that and they still feel rubbish. We, are, we struggle in the UK to put money toward our mental health. In lots of ways, gyms, eating healthily, we're down with that. We're not so down with spending money on mental health still. Why do you think that is? Because we're talking about the UK specifically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think we don't see it. I think we feel cross if we don't feel well and that we should feel well. So why have I got to pay money to go and help me to feel well? It's something about our mentality, whereas in the in the USA, you're unusual if you don't have a therapist. There's, there's, you know, it's very unusual. So, But here... It's almost as if we feel it's our right to be feeling mentally well and it's not hard work. Working on your mental health is not luxurious. It's horrible most of the time, as is going to the gym most of the time. Yeah, we feel good afterwards, but it's not a... I I think there's a misconception that working on your mental health is a nice bubble bath with a glass of champagne and and a walk on the hills, which is fabulous. But it is also the underbelly of that. It's, you know, I remember when I was, I mean, I've been in therapy for years. We have to as train as, as practicing therapists. And I remember walking along once and a slate fell off a building. I come out of a therapy session. It fell off the roof of the building and missed my head by about an inch. And I was like, that hitting my head has got to be better than therapy. <laughs> and, and that is how it is sometimes. <laughs> How, how do you define therapy? Mm. Um, well, well, our line is a good conversation with a qualified person. Um, how do I define therapy? Maybe in the context of uh, coaching or you know, in the spectrum of you know, professional services, support services, you know, personal services, um, you know, whether it's from a mental health point of view, whether it's a professional development perspective, because you mentioned, uh, you know, helping your clients, your, however you define your, um, your customers, find their own problems. Yeah, it's very much a coaching. I'm always really happily annoyed, which really says maybe three things in the hour, um, all of which he said before. Problem that I've sort of arrived at the session with, he directly hasn't answered. He's just sort of provoked. How do we uh, approach this? Or what should I do about that? You know, I answer myself and it's like, well, why am I paying you anything? Did I really pay you for that? <laughs> the beauty of it, right? In terms of the, obviously, the dynamic and the relationship and the trust. But, you know, asking good questions, uh, which to me is you can move that into like journalists in terms of just a good interview with that context sort of how and where would sort of therapy sort of sit how you you would define it because I'm assuming also there's a professional sort of clinical layer to this you know as coaching has in terms of its regulated bodies but I'm assuming again the years months of you know uh, practice that goes in to become you know a therapist is 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 slightly longer I think it's interesting that you kind of orientate it towards coaching which lots of people do um I'm also a Tavistock trainer because you you know you're in agencies right you're in businesses and that's also a blurred line and I, I definitely want to come back to your point about an employer's is an employee, but let's park that for a minute. In America, everybody has a therapist, but in the UK, we don't. It's because we, we're uncomfortable with the word therapy or therapist, and maybe it just needs, as you say, a 
hey, it's just a nice conversation. And it's like, oh, okay, I can have a conversation. And it, it was something about that. And I think, you know, look, I trained as a coach. And honestly, had I not done my therapy training before, I don't think I would have been qualified to deal with the, the majority of the matter that's coming up in coaching sessions. I think coaching is very useful in the workplace sometimes, but it's much more palatable to have a coach than it is a therapist. I think that's one. So in terms of definitions... Palatable for who? Palatable for the client and for the company. Okay. We can cope with understanding a coach because a coach helps us to be better in our mind. That's how we frame it. PE coach helps us... uh, A coach trains us, right, to, Mm -hmm. to get better, whereas a therapist, you know... There's something so much dirtier about that in the in the way that we understand it here in in the UK, which is, I think it's about um, the idea that something has to be broken to go to therapy. Whereas coaching, I think people view it as you're doing quite well, but you want to get you want to be better at it, and I don't think that is right in terms of definition. I don't know if I can. Put, define it but I would say that therapy really focuses in on helping get the unsaid said so the thing that lives in you the unconscious parts of you that are very difficult to articulate they don't look like something as simple as a statement they are behaviors they're dreams they're the unconscious things that we do and yet we don't we don't know why we're doing it and I think the therapist's job is to hold a mirror up to show the client what they cannot see. And I think that that is quite challenging, as well as enlightening. And when you have those moments, you know, clients refer to it as like, you know, it being a penny in a penny slot machine. And when it hits the bottom, it's it's not something you can go, oh, I met that target or I did what that objective. It's, it's a feeling. It's a thing that lives in you. I guess this is all techniques as well, right, in terms of how you hold your mirror up, certainly from... I've had it explained to me actually from my coach about uh, maybe it's oversimplified about looking forward rather than looking back. Um, you know, obviously, they are <laughs> your history, uh, your childhood, you know, all of these defining moments, uh, you know, make up who you are and therefore are really going to define who you will be. I'm fascinated by it personally, uh, just in terms of the discipline um but you know through the lens of you know personal improvement but also you know team improvement and and, how that can be uh, embodied in the workplace to your point earlier about the responsibility for this is also very pertinent and you know very timely uh in terms of a lot of businesses asking questioning challenging their purpose in whichever brand or business that you operate but equally in terms of you know, what sort of company are you running and uh, you know, whether that's diversity and inclusion you know, matters or you know, representation in terms of who is in your business and you know, how, you, how you show up. Um, you know, well, I mean, we are going through it ourselves in terms of protein as a business. It's really incredibly important discussions to be, be had with your team and and uh, yeah, and it's it's a you know it's a fine line uh, just to really uh, be responsive and also responsible, but also responsive to to those requests, um, which you know you always certainly try to be, and you can always be better at, understandably, because we are certainly we've certainly got a long way to go in terms of who we are as a business and what we certainly would, would like to be. Um, but you know, it's like at what point you know, does that responsibility, you know, that, where is that line drawn? How you work with businesses in, in that context and how, where you feel that responsibility, and I know it's not your opinion, but I guess where you have, from experience have, have found that line to be drawn. Yeah, I think it's, um, and it's, it's interesting for you as a business owner as well to, to really, I guess it's really holding that tension, isn't it, between... How do I empathise and understand deeply as well as know that I am running a business? And, and, and ultimately, that's your job. 
is to run the business so that there's jobs to be done. And that's a tension that I think employees can find difficult and leaders and managers can also find difficult. Um, it's our place. It's, it's the knife edge of something. And I, so the way we work with companies is we educate, you know, we'll work, we offer therapeutic services. So we do straight therapy with employees, an anonymous service that you can get a session pretty much that day. Um, a company buys a bundle and those sessions happen. The clinical matter within those sessions is confidential. But we work with the company to, um, I guess, to support the talk around mental health, to become something that is embedded within the company in a, in a way that, that has impact positively on the system, the company system. And that might be about how do we make really hard things said here? How do we expose very toxic things that are happening within companies that people at the top really don't want to know, except they know that it's happening? And what is that doing to employee mental health? Also, some very basic things, which are, you know, we we look at the leaders of our companies in some ways like we do our parents. And if you've got people at the top saying one thing and doing something else, it becomes very difficult for people underneath to keep respect to honor their commitments and sometimes it's really about going back to basics like you know how do we veto drugs we don't have lateness we are respectful and kind we say what we need to say all of these things which actually really shape the culture of a company I think that we went really far into what does it mean to be creative agencies and all this stuff amazing yes but in order for creativity to exist, we have to have boundaries. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, um, it's, it's absolutely implicit to good mental health. And also within that, and you know, a pertinent topic right now in terms of Black Lives Matter movement and you know, is, is diversity in the creative industry as two white people um, talking about you know, or business owners um, yeah, it's something that we are you know, addressing ourselves, going through the process, you know, holding the mirror up analogy as to what we, uh, certainly the world in which we, we work, but also how that is represented in, in, in the business itself, which is, which is poor. I mean, it's terrible and it needs to change and it is changing. I guess the, the, the thread of that is then how that also as a role, um, and this isn't obviously your your, your primary role, but in terms of a supporting role, in terms of advising business owners, business leaders, you know, to be thinking about these important matters and you know, uh, diversity inclusion obviously being a, a major one. Um, I guess it's sort of like where, like where does that fit uh, in terms of a, a, a broad uh, offer emotional intelligence in the workplace or, you know, corporate governance and, you know, some of those you know, softer matters, really hard-hitting ones that we all need to really address, but also within the businesses, as, you know, as we are doing with our clients. And, you know, I think that also comes back to purpose and who we are and why we exist. But it's, yeah, it definitely feels... Uh, it's so topical, isn't it? And, you know, I think the... Uh, you know, how do we... How do we know that we are all racist, ultimately? How do we sit with that very shadowy matter that really is, it really exists. And I mean, every single human has the potential to be all of the things that we adamantly say we are not. And so how do we use that information to feel shame and make change? And I think that is ultimately the painful part. It is not okay for companies to say they are one thing and to do something else. And that takes something around, you know, integrity. Let's hold firm to the value of what it means to care for one another without not being. We can still be challenging. We can still have conflict. We can still not be agreeable all the time. But how do we hold ourselves accountable to the things that really matter? And I think that is very, very difficult conversations. And it starts with things like, not talking about people behind their backs. 
everybody does that in companies and it really really does not help culture it's the simple things around intake let's not lie let's show up when we say we're going to show up and if we don't let's say why if we can't do these simple things having the bigger conversations is going to be almost impossible and so I think there's you know there's something really important in the way that we are how we write about people in emails or don't how we cultivate something which looks like and feels like value and I don't mean that all needs to be nice having a nice place to work no but there's something about these bigger things that that you know we we run um, the social good platform for widening Kennedy which is um, a platform that that I launched with um, uh, James McCall and Danny Mohammed, which was about um, creativity in schools. And it was something about targeting the issues around what is not equality in terms of race within the... In the but without directly doing that, by going into schools with the most marginalised children and talking about creativity and helping them live creative, creatively through a program that I think really matters to the agency and has run for several years now so that they can experience what it feels like to be creative and then wonder about making a living out of that rather than there has to be something authentic about the way that we we target this problem it has to come really I think we need to be working now for the next sort of 10 years and what that looks like because we can't just put we can't just make this look pretty and tick the boxes. It's something else. It's it's bigger than that. And are you are you doing that yourselves at Self Space? Well, that was something that uh, that I launched through my other company. Just just by noticing one, what was happening in agencies. Two, that, that some of these children have no idea about what creative jobs there are there. And rather than teach them about the jobs, which they don't give a shit about at six and seven and eight, really. They just want to be with another human that they feel valued and respected by, and they want to feel what it's like to share in creativity. That is how we will help them, is by feeling something. This is how we want them to connect to their work in their later life, whatever that is. And so we run a buddy programme. I think we've worked with over 700 children now in the UK and in Portland. We buddy them up with somebody in the agency. We run workshops three times a year. And they're just these amazing kind of experiences for the children. And if one of them turns out to be a copywriter because they had a magic moment of writing a story, amazing. If we told them to be a copywriter, it doesn't mean anything. So that's been that's been really, really important and really good. Um, yeah, and growth. How do we help children to grow? Because that's that's really where our change is going to be. Yeah. You mentioned on it before in terms of that friction, something that we call good growth, which is a balance between purpose, you know, progress and profit uh, in terms of, you know, those that Venn diagram of, 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 of forces. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know, purpose. You know, there's a lot of talk about progress in terms of like progressive mindsets and, you know, the more forward-thinking approaches, you know, but the profit bit, you know, is is the big hairy, you know, elephant in the room that you know we've still, we've still got to run a business, right? We've still got to make some money, otherwise, you know, none of this happens. This isn't necessarily saying that we all need to become charities or you know, community interest companies. Um, you know, you can still be a for-profit and you know, still be beneficial to the world from Ben and Jerry's or players of this world and you know the B Corps in terms of that category of, of um of company. Uh, but yeah I think there's you know there's some definitely some healthy frictions between those uh behavioral mindsets for any business owner, any business you know leader, anybody who's who's responsible ultimately. Um, be really considering and, 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 and adjusting as the world around us uh, definitely changes. Changing tack slightly, uh, let's talk about sort of the early Jody. Oh, 
you want to go there, do you? <laughs> You're happy with that. Where, where are you from, Jodie? <laughs> I'm from uh, Ringma, which is just outside Lewis, kind of the other side of Brighton. Yeah, so down in East Sussex, and um, it came to Hackney maybe 20, 23 years ago or something. Um, I think with a seed of knowing, like at that time, Hackney was not like Hackney is now. And I think I came from a really a village that was had no diversity in it, and actually, quite uh, you know, within my family historically quite racist approach to people and I wanted not to be that and not to be associated with that and I wanted to put myself somewhere I wanted my children to go to school I knew that I wanted them to just know people and I wanted them to be somewhere where we could be kind of you know within lots of different um kind of cultural experiences and that's why we ended up in Hackney I don't think I consciously knew that then um, but I did when I took my kids to school on the first day I was like this is exactly the the, the, the space that I want them to be in um, why are your kids at school well, they go to well they've just finished uh, Millfields primary which was in um, which is a big community school in in Hackney and the head teacher is brilliant and um, you know I I really like London schools for kids I think you get some of the best and most progressive teachers there um and yeah and so I, I I think I wanted to put distance I love my family dearly but I I think I really wanted to put some type of distance between to, between what they valued and and what I wanted to to kind of how I wanted to live I guess yeah and if you can cast yourself back to the ages that your kids are currently <laughs> god that awful haircut and dressing up like a boy is what I thought I wanted to look like. <laughs> I have you know, a really clear ambition of like, this is what I'm going to be, like, this is what I'm going to do. Or was it a bit more sort of nebulous in terms of that direction or trajectory? Um, so my son Elvis is, is nearly 13 and my daughter Bieber is 11. Um, and so when I think back to that time I don't think I, I I think I wanted to be on the telly that's what I knew I wanted to be on the telly I didn't want to be famous I don't remember wanting to be famous but I wanted to be on the telly which I think now looking back was something about wanting to be seen um maybe by my dad I don't you know we won't go there into that type but I don't think I knew why and when I got to doing presenting, I didn't really have anything to say. It was really interesting. I was like, I don't really have anything. I'm not really interested in what we're talking about. And that was weird because I just thought I'd get on the telly and it would just be great and amazing. And I, you know, I'd just be on the telly. <laughs> Um, but no, I didn't. I know that I found on my 40s, my mum got out all these pictures and boxes of things that were, were mine when I was a little girl. And I used to make lists of the things that I was going to have in my house, like matching towels and uh, bed linen from M&S. <laughs> I don't really know what that was about, but it was something about making order. And, and I think it was the things that I thought that I was going to really value. Potpourri was on that list too. <laughs> you checked all those boxes now. I totally have. Yeah, I'm so down. <laughs> Pardon? Your brothers or sisters? Yes, I've got a lot of brothers and sisters, half brothers and sisters. I think there's nine all in all um, on my dad's side. Um, is more and my mum's side she's got two children that are younger than me and then my dad's got um it got more and they're older and some are younger and I am the only child of my mama and my dad um and um I'm sort of somewhere in the middle really and so how was, how was that growing up then surrounded by this <laughs> complicated it, it was complicated. I, um, you know, I think that, you know, my mum always says, oh, you're a love child. And I do, th I do believe that. 
um, I definitely have felt a lot of love. Um, and but it was it was very it was very complex. There was a lot of anger and a lot of kind of um, people pretending to feel okay about things and not really. It was complicated, you know, um, and I think they did their best. Um, but it it wasn't in any way idyllic, although we did have horses and I did get to ride. But all I wanted to do was go shopping in M&S. I didn't want to be out mucking out horses. That was not what I wanted to do. <laughs> On the telly. Shopping in it. I mean, you know, it's the dream life, really. It's interesting, though, to think what M&S represented for me. I do remember M&S as a child, or not really. Yeah, no, for sure. It was, it was this bastard sort of... Yeah. The high street. Like a grandparent or something. Exactly. Yeah. Underwear from, right? <laughs> so uncool, even then. It wasn't cool, and it wasn't either posh. It was just something quite normal, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah accessible um but yeah so that's um yeah so yeah lots of brothers and sisters lots of people around really busy family like really busy always loads of people in our um, family and animals and I don't have any animals I never want any oh we do we have two guinea pigs which are the bane of my bloody life but I I felt that the animals got all the love and attention and people people didn't we everyone was intuiting what the animals were feeling and no one was really talking about how they were doing. Um and I think that's quite common actually. I think people hide behind animals. How many animals? Oh, we had horses, dogs, cats. We were always rescuing some type of animal or something and um my mum and my sister still kind of do that now. Um, they have lots of horses and it's a lovely, you know, it's a nice kind of life. But I think it keeps everyone's skin. It's very expensive. We had no money, really. We didn't go on holiday ever. That wasn't, my dad took me a couple of times, but not really. Um, so it, it was a good life, but it, it just, it's very different to how my kids have their life now, I guess. Growing up then in Lewis, as you said, in a local the local school I assume and you mentioned it already but just in terms of the reaction to that or the 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 polar opposite of that as soon as you were given some freedom yeah that was pent up what your ambitions were and other than getting on the telly to escape the south coast yeah I just yeah wanted to be away and I was sort of always a bit different I'm the only person in my family that exercises I think one of my brothers probably does but there was and I'm not saying I exercise all the time but there wasn't really a sort of health there wasn't much consciousness around living well there was lots of drinking and um sort of overeating and all kind of stuff like that it it just felt yeah I I, I left quite early I I think I left when I was 16 or 17 and I went and worked in Greece for a bit and then came back and um yeah, I have never have never gone gone back really. I go back for weekends and stuff, but and just on that journey post <clears throat> South Coast in sort of your move, um I guess sort of more professional uh, steps, like what <laughs> and have nothing to say on telly. Which which show was that? <laughs> I did wildlife. I did Tiger Tiger for Channel Five, which I don't know if you'll find any of. Which was amazing. I mean, but I was so, went from when I was three. Union analysis analysts will have a field day with this, but I was terrified of sharks. I mean, I'd never been on holiday. I'd never been in the sea, but I had books under my pillow of sharks, great white sharks. And my mum used to say, when all I wanted to talk about was that. But I was so scared, like I could, there's no, no way I could have gotten in the sea because I'd made myself so terrified. So my first gig was, um, I went to, to audition for the Pepsi chart show. The commissioner phoned me and he was like, you're a bit of a loose cannon for us to put on live TV, but I want you to do this wildlife show. And I was like, okay, cool. And he was like, so the first gig is in South Africa and it's a night dive with a great white shark. And I was like... 
not a problem. Yeah, definitely be there, put the phone down. I was like, shit, what am I going to do? Um, and I went to uh, hypnotherapy in a bid to sort of, I had to do it all because I had to be on the telly, obviously. Um, and I did do it and it was awful. It was so deeply traumatic for me. Um, and it was years later in therapy when I was able to kind of really work through what that was about. But the the synchronicity of it was unbelievable, really. How is your relationship with sharks now? <laughs> I'm good in the sea now. I'm cool. I, I would never do that again. It was the only thing I've ever looked at that had no soul. I mean, I literally... Have you done it? Have you died for the great white shark? Um, I can't say that's on my list. <laughs> I'm happy for you. <laughs> but no, it was... Um, I'm good in the sea now, not a problem. But I am... Um, no, no thank you. I would not do that again. <laughs> okay, how long did that like, journey last? That poor crew. I feel so sorry for them. They were such a lovely production company. I was quite awful. Um, uh, I... I think I, I did two series or maybe three, I can't remember. And we did some amazing stuff. Like we went, we did the gorillas in Uganda. We did manatees in Florida. I mean, I can remember my friends being like, oh, this, I mean, honestly, you cow, this is, and I was so not sure why I was doing it or what I was doing that it didn't really, it didn't connect for me at all. I mean, I look back on the photos and I'm like, that was amazing but I really wasn't television-y at all like no makeup looked terrible don't really know what I'm saying oh um, <laughs> and then after that I did so I did that for a bit and then I got offered Fort Boyard which I did some other stuff and then I got offered Fort Boyard which was that game show you know with the dwarfs and poor thing on in the tigers on a fort yeah. and awful really as a concept um, lovely production company again and um, really a, a good experience in some ways but really I don't know what I was doing and after I finished that I was with a really big agent and then <laughs> I let them put coral lipstick on me for because we were filming so many and I mean it was a bizarre thing and I can remember the agent calling up and going is this what you really want to do because it seems like you're not really present and I was like yeah, I think I, I think this isn't really for me. Um, and I stopped after that. I kind of wonder, had I had better guidance and maybe it was a real time where there weren't many presenters. It was Davina McCall. There was kind of D Dermot. There was a fern. There were a few people. Um, but it wasn't saturated like it is now. Um, and I, I just didn't know myself. I really didn't, um, and I think it could have been a very dangerous industry for me had I not left. I don't know what I mean by that, but... but so was there a moment that you were like, this is not right for me, this is unhealthy for me, this is, this is not what makes me feel good? Yeah, I think I came back from that Fort Boyard thing and my agent was like, look, I think we need to go our separate ways after they took the fee, obviously. <laughs> um, I... I had just a moment of going, okay, I don't... I'm realising it rather than you realising it. Yeah, he said he said he wanted to part ways. And, and then I got quite a lot of interest from some others. And I just didn't have... I felt I didn't have the confidence to do it. But I don't know if... I think the conf, confidence comes from being joined up, right? It comes from your sense of self and your persona being married together. And I think I was so far off... If you think of two polar opposite professions, really... Therapy is doing the internal work. Presenting is doing the external stuff. Um, it was almost as though I just, I don't know really how I even found myself on, none of my family have been to therapy. It wasn't a language we spoke. It wasn't anything I knew. What I knew, I think, was um, avoidance of feelings, avoiding talking about difficult things. I knew that. And so I think I sought out the opposite. At that moment? Yeah, it was quite soon after. I I also working in an agency as well as because I, I went abroad quite a bit and I wasn't allowed to work for any other shows. So when I was here, I did some work for agencies. And I remember standing outside and I was on the phone to my mum and I was just like, I'm so unhappy, I'm so unhappy, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
And the next thing I knew, I'd enrolled on this therapy master's. And um, when I did, I went to set, I trained initially at Central School of Speech and Drama as a drama and movement therapist. And um, the course leader said, I'm going to, we're going to take a risk on you. <laughs> and, and that, and that was it really. And, and honestly, I, it was the best decision that, that I'd ever made. Coming back to, I guess, the, that purpose then, in terms of from what it sounds like you sort of finding your purpose finding an understanding for your feelings and turning that into sort of your purpose. Um, has there, was there ever any, uh, ever, a, you know, like a sort of business ambition there, um, you know, of like, oh, this could become something bigger or this could become something that other people could benefit from? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and you mentioned before something about, you know, when companies are looking or when people are thinking about doing something, they go straight to, well, I'll be a volunteer or I'll do charity work. And I knew I didn't want that. I, I, I really knew that I wanted to earn some money, but I wanted to earn it doing something that, that felt good. I don't even think I thought I want to do something that helps other people feel good, if I'm honest. That wasn't a conscious decision. It was about, I didn't want to struggle financially like my family had. Um, and I'm not saying I haven't or won't in the future, but I, I also wanted to make my money legally and I wanted to do something that was, that was a, a, a profession, I guess. So I, I felt like that was a driver for me for sure. I, I wanted to be independent. I wanted to be financially secure. Um, and um, I also wanted to be around a bit for my children. So I think all of these things played in to my kind of decision making, really. And I bought my first flat when I was 20 or something. Um, and that was something that my family hadn't really had. My mum didn't really own a house until quite recently. And I there was something... That, that did, it, it also for me, you don't have, you can be entrepreneurial, you can have a business mind and you can do good with purpose. I don't think those things have to not coexist. And I think there should be much more of that. And of course, the wellness industry is one of the fastest growing markets. Um, uh, but I don't, you, I knew I wanted to have a bit of glamour as well as doing some of the kind of more gritty stuff. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, two final questions, Jodie. One is um, tips, questions, recommendations that uh, you know, listeners might benefit from in these sort of times of uncertainty. You regularly post some excellent ones on your Instagram, which I will certainly direct people to. Is there a personal favourite of some of those good sayings? So that's uh, that's our founding partner who's in charge of the social, and he's he's brilliant. He's a, a real joy. Um, but yes, they all feel really truthful to what we do. Um, I don't know if it's about the quotes really, but it it's definitely something about. Um, I I guess I would challenge people to not let fear paralyze them. I think people can stay in the fear space for a really long time and they dress it up with rationale which might look like I can't afford to I'm not sure I oh but what about x and y and fear speaks it's the defense part once you jump really we have so much resilience look at what this period of life has shown us all we are adaptable we can change we are buoyant we can do it I think we're going to see mobilization for people here that have been terrified to do leave relationships leave jobs leave London I think this this period somewhere collectively has shown us that we can we're all we're here you know and so I think that don't you don't have to feel unhappy look I think happiness is a myth I think contentedness is something that we can strive for I I don't 
you don't you make the choices you are in the driving seat it's not enough though to do the the magazine format top tips for you know delete his number do do this questionnaire and change your job you have to really get into the foundations of yourself we can't pretend anything we can't pretend we don't still love someone we can't pretend we're not grieving let's allow ourselves to feel the big feelings and we will move through them feelings are transient so there's something about that for me I always feel really reassured by the idea of feeling the earth beneath my feet this is something that is there and it's solid and it is here and we there's something very grounding about that sense of what that means um I also really like to hold hands with people when we can the idea of feeling the the texture of somebody else another living being and the the temperature and there's something which takes us outside of ourselves so those things I don't think there's a quick fix I think it's work I think it's everyday work um don't beat yourself up we speak to ourselves very harshly it's okay to make mistakes it's how we learn it's how we grow um so maybe that it's not a nice neat bullet point box but I'm sorry (laughs) that's gonna fit on an Instagram square (laughs) Jack. it's not a quote for you there do you have a favourite? Do you have a favourite quote? Uh, yeah, I mean, a few, like, in terms of the situations, um, you know, personal ones of just, like, getting through stuff when, you know, it's just wall, a wall, a wall. So, no, in short, I think it's, again, uh, well, as you've just articulated, it, it's more of a mindset. Had a great chat with Pip Jameson on, on the show, one of our first um, one of our interviews, and... Um, we spoke a lot about dyslexia, which he is and I am, <clears throat> and how that is embodies resilience as a as an entrepreneur. She's way more eloquent on the reeling off the numbers. I know some of the famous dys- dyslexic folk. It's a crazy percentage. I think it's seventy percent of entrepreneurs or six percent of entrepreneurs are dyslexic and and it's this ingrained resilience that you've had to work that bit harder because the way that you see the words on the page or the way that you understand what's around you you're having to you know, work that extra whatever it is 20 percent um which i definitely resonate with even when you've mentioned it and that's more of a, a reminder rather than necessarily uh you know a mantra um, and it's like, okay, you know, life is hard. <laughs> and it doesn't always make sense. That's the thing with this next year. Uh, yeah, I always sort of come back to, but you know, in the long scheme of things, we'll be all right. Or as my mum would say, being a nurse, it's like, <laughs> if it doesn't kill you, make you stronger. But yeah, I think, as you said, that's it's very much a personal you know, understanding of the situation that obviously comes with layers of experience and, and coming back to the beginning of the conversation around, you know, our current time and, and the lockdown and really what impact that has had. Um, I just feel blessed that I've had, you know, I've, I've, you know, we've been through hard times and obviously nothing as hard as what this is, but, you know, there's at least an element of you know, experience that you can resilience that you've you've got as a as a backup whereas you know younger generations and you know some of my staff like they don't like this is this is like what the fuck and they haven't had that experience and they haven't had to really ask those questions and you know that is i mean hey what concerning like well understandable that they they just haven't been been in those situations before i mean none of us i think has been in the current situation before but at least we've had an element of like i don't know recession or you know crazy uncertainties in terms of our immediate surroundings i think as humans we are you know and we need we do need to remember more we are one of the most adaptable species and sometimes we just have knowing that is good enough you know um but yeah. Who would you like to hear from on the show? Hmm. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, 
there's um so there is uh, there's a few people um you should talk to our founding partner one day chance he's fab um there's a guy called james Bidoff who's the head he's a doctor of creativity and he's the headmaster of cambridge primary school he's a he's a phenomenal brilliant wonderful man um and has some great ideas i think you would really like talking with him um and i also think um if you haven't spoken to Tony Davidson from Weidman Kennedy, he's a, he's a creative director, or the ECD over there, and he's um, he's a very cool guy and very, very nice. <laughs> and also not nice sometimes, too. <laughs> it's been amazing. Um, really good to hear your story. Um, I'll certainly share the website, your Insta, um, which, uh, I mean, what, what is the best way of someone contacting you? Adam? So they, they can email us at hey at the selfspace.com. Customer services will help them book, download the app, and reach out on social at the selfspace. Um, give us a call, um, all of those ways. Very easy to book. You just literally download the app and you can get a session, choose the therapist and come and see us. It's not a big deal. Excellent. Cool. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to spend time with you. Thank you. Yes.